Christine Rosen joins us today. I thought that in this uh, campaign year that we might take a look at uh, the role of the fourth estate in in our uh, in our certain political reality, however disordered it is becoming. She is senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and media columnist at Commentary Magazine. She has a doctorate in history from Emory University and is the author of, among other things, Preaching Eugenics, Religious Leaders and the American Eugenics Movement, and My Fundamentalist Education, a memoir of a divine girlhood. Divine girlhood, nice. Uh, I, uh, I I thought that uh, she would offer her expertise. She's been following the press for, for quite a while now. Uh, welcome, Ms. Rosen. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, you had a column in commentary in October, last October, entitled All the President's Press Men. Uh, that, that title obviously alludes to the famous Watergate movie. And uh, before that, the Robert Van Warren novel and another movie, actually. Uh, and I presume that you were suggesting that today's White House reporters are just as dogged and as critical and avid to root out corruption and malfeasance in the Biden administration as Woodward and Bernstein were the Nixon administration. Is that correct? Oh, I wish. I wish that it were so. Um, no, it was definitely a title chosen uh, ironically, um, because uh, on the contrary, I think that we found in the last few years uh, of this administration that the press has done a great deal to try to cover for the administration. And I'll put it, uh, there, there's a little bit of a history here. If you're conservative, as I am, as I assume many of your listeners are, we've long been charged with uh, complaining too much about the liberal bias of the mainstream media. It's a complaint that I think has a, a fair amount of uh, truth to it. If you, if you are conservative and you know something about the issues and you see how they're often covered, it's often very biased, ideologically motivated, unfair. Uh, but there is something that's pretty clear here, and that's that you know most of the people who run the mainstream media are themselves from the elite institutions and from left-leaning political views that would tend to vote for a Democrat, for example. And if you look at surveys, most of our major mainstream uh, media reporters and journalists are of the left. So when it comes time to cover uh, hard-hitting news out of a left-leaning administration, it becomes difficult for many of them to do their jobs. But in the case of Joe Biden, it has actually become impossible for some of them to do their jobs, evidently. Um, and we're seeing the, the, the fact that that's not a sustainable situation anymore. I was just, just before we started recording, I was reading some more of the, the her report uh, about the, de the deposition that Joe Biden gave, uh, about what he could remember, about documents, top secret documents he'd kept uh, in his home. And it's clear now that this, uh, this idea that our president is fully functioning, firing on all cinder cylinders, turning cartwheels in the, in the uh, East Room of the White House and running circles around his much younger counterparts isn't true. Um, and that's actually one of the things that I think the press has uh, kept from the public's view for as long as possible. So that's one example. There are, there are many, many more. But no, uh, the title was ironic because this, this, uh, this administration has not been given any sort of rigorous test of its uh, behavior by the press. In that piece, you refer to some factual discoveries about the Hunter Biden case that implicated his father. How, how did the mainstream outlets cover those developments? Uh, uh, not very well. <laughs> uh, you know, we know from uh, if, if everyone who followed the uh, Hunter Biden laptop story, as they remember, that was... Uh, 
covered as Russian disinformation at first. Uh, the press did everything it could to sort of bend over backwards to say, oh, we just have to keep looking. It's all, all the evidence isn't in. Uh, but once it was clear that this was, in fact, a real laptop with stuff on it that was perhaps uh, going to be harmful, certainly to Hunter Biden and, and perhaps to Joe Biden, then they started to try to cover it as as gently as possible. And one of the reasons that this is, is possible for them to do, I think, is that Joe Biden's White House is extremely unavailable to the media. As, as many of you probably know and have remembered from previous administrations, the press loves to criticize um, presidents, uh, particularly Republican presidents, who don't make themselves available for press conferences to answer questions. Joe Biden has not has done very few interviews. He's answered very few off the cuff questions. That there's a reason for that. Um, when he does present himself to the press, that press has been vetted. Many of them have not. People who've applied for can't get into the press room. Um, and then he has cards that show the questions that will likely be asked by the press, what their names are, what he should respond. The whole mm-hmm. thing becomes a kind of Potemkin experience. If you're if you know the background, this isn't how the press is supposed to work. Well, one thing when you know, I was reading when you talking about that and his overall unavailability to the press uh, when he does do sit downs, you write, quote, it is often with softball celebrity hosts or social media influencers like <laughs> YouTube boy beauty blogger Manny. Is it M M M U A or I don't know? I do not know how to. That's, I don't know how to pronounce it either. That's how absurd it is. <laughs> Drew Mayor, Drew Barrymore, you say, who asked hard hitting questions about what gifts Biden likes to give to his wife. Now, question, Christine, wait, wait, wait. Where, where are the reporters? You know, the tough, jaded, cynical. You know, always skeptical of, of people in power. Doesn't this infuriate veteran reporters? One would think it would, and I think it probably does if they're being honest, but there is something, that there's a big elephant in the room that keeps them from actually admitting it and then acting on it, and that's Donald Trump. Because there are a lot of journalists who think that Donald Trump isn't just a political rival to Joe Biden, but an existential threat to democracy. They write about that. They talk about it. They're very clear about that. So if you believe someone is an existential threat, then the rules no longer have to apply. And that has suited their own ideological priors very well. So you see a lot of these examples where, you know, uh, my favorite, of course, are the fact checkers, you know, like Glenn Kessler at the Washington Post and elsewhere, when Joe Biden, who throughout his very long public career has constantly lied, um, constantly lied, even about his own biography over and over and over again. And journalists know this, they know, they know this is the case. When someone like Donald Trump or George W. Bush uh, told uh, a prevarication, a lie of some sort, it was front page news. People kept track of it. There were all these lists. When Joe Biden lies, it is a um, uh, misremembering or it's an embellishment or it's just this charming, quirky thing that good old Joe does. So that even the way that those things are framed, the unwillingness to fact check someone who holds so much power is incredibly worrisome. But I do believe a whole lot of journalists think that they are actually performing a public service by not doing the hard hitting questioning and reporting on Joe Biden and his administration because of Trump. Now, we, we, we accept every administration wants to spin, right? They want to control the media. They want to control the message and, and, and frame it in, in favorable context. Uh, are the Biden... See, uh, I look at the Biden people and I see just rank incompetence. They're not even good at the, the manipulation the, you know, relative to, to previous administrations. Uh, this, is, this really is 
the reporter's fault. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't want to give the Biden administration too much brilliance, do you? Do you? No. <laughs> o- over over their, their their ability to to control the message. No, I mean, it's it's interesting to me. The job of a press secretary for any president is impossible because you kind of are charged with, um, I mean, the good ones just commit sins of omission. <laughs> the, the bad ones, which I would say both Jen Psaki and Karine Jean-Pierre, uh, Biden's press secretaries, both of them actively lie to the public in, in, in the most blatant and hubristic way possible. And we know this because thankfully now, in a way that we didn't a few uh even a generation ago, we have a conservative media ecosystem that is watching and listening and saying, you know what, that doesn't really seem right. Let's report it out ourselves. We have journalists on on the right side of the aisle, some some better than others, some ideologically motivated as well. But there is there is now an alternative to whatever that spin they're trying to do is. There's also social media platforms where you have instant fact-checking. I mean, I actually believe that um, Community Notes on X, formerly the platform formerly known as Twitter, um, performs a massive public service because they this is a crowdsourced way for people to say, actually, here's what the facts are. Here's a link to another right. story that says the opposite. These are all- And, and what I've seen of Community Notes is they, they're very circumspect. Yes. yes. It's really fact. Exactly. Basic empirical fact. This is there. There no fudging. No, and they they don't they don't weigh into areas where there might be any gray. No, and it's not politically motivated. And in fact, they'll yeah. if, if you try to post a politically motivated community note, from what I understand, it will not post. Like they will. It's kind of a crowdsourced, um, almost like a Wikipedia in real time on what's being posted on social media. Yeah. Uh, now, now I think you misquote Dana Milbank in the Washington Post because. He couldn't have said this. There's no way he said that, quote, the media treat Biden as badly or worse than Trump. Now, now that was a fabrication on your part, correct? <laughs> oh, I wish. Again, <laughs> um, no. Dana Milbank, is a, he, he's a major columnist. He's been, he's been a prominent voice for 20 plus years. How, how could he? This is just bizarre. Well, it's, like I think it's in their own minds, perfectly rational. Again, he is he is defending democracy. He is not merely defending the Biden administration, you see. And that is what we are supposed to understand. But of course, if you if you are even if you're, uh, you know, a Democratic leaning voter or reader, seeing that is is uh, what I have found, especially recently, is that you see statements like that. You see the way people are trying to cover this administration and then you see with your own eyes what's happening. I was struck by the way that the press tried to spin the withdrawal from Afghanistan, for example, which was a disaster, absolute disaster. The stories that immediately came out were like, oh, look, he's in control. The grownups are in charge. And you're watching this going, that that doesn't scan. We see this time and time again with Biden's own public performances. He seems confused. He's stumbling around. What's happening? He, he makes all kinds of serious errors about who leads uh, nation states, uh, you kind of want your president on top of that. But we're told, oh, no, 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 it's he was just tired. They're all, all this excuse making can't hold. It cannot hold. And I think that's actually where you then start to see something more along the lines of propaganda. And we saw this with the Biden administration's attempt to suppress certain voices by contacting people in social media platforms and saying, pull that down. You see them putting pressure on you know, booksellers, Amazon. So there is, unfortunately, a very dark and dystopian side to, to the kind of federal power and how it can be used to threaten platforms that publish things. That worries me more long term, because that's once that can of worms is opened up. Anyone, anyone's going to use that. I mean, if if Biden uses it, a Republican will use it if they're in office. This is the kind of thing that you really want to make sure doesn't happen because it suppresses free speech. 
you mentioned the the factor the Trump factor has 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 really as legitimation or justification at least in their own minds if if Nikki Haley were the nominee for the Republicans would the press conduct toward the Biden administration change do you think that's a good question. Um, I think their feel free to speculate. <laughs> their, I think their protectiveness of Biden at this point would not change because it would force them to actually uh, step back a little. Although a few journalists are doing that now with regard to the age issue with Biden. If it was Nikki Haley, though, I don't think they could argue it's an existential threat. That being said, when when uh, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, was ahead in the polls early on when he w- we, he had his hat in the ring, they were there were stories saying Trump is bad, but DeSantis would be worse because and they would list all these. things. So I do think that that's the inbuilt, longstanding, left leaning mainstream media bias at work. It would be harder for that to be effective with regard to someone like Nikki Haley. But their protectiveness of Biden, I will be watching very closely in the coming months because it's there are cracks here and there. There are really some cracks in terms of the age issue and the competence issue right now. Do you see a generational factor among, among the media uh, that 60-year-olds, that 30-year-old journalists are quite different? They have a quite different conception of themselves as journalists and 60-year-olds. Yes, it's, um, uh, now I'm going to sound like old lady shouting at clouds, um, but that's well, I, what I, 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 I'm not one to, I'm not one to criticize <laughs> you young teed people. me up for this. So you're, but, 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 but no, you know. absolutely. So you have what you do see among younger journalists, particularly those who are very social justice oriented is, um, a lot of, uh, caveats around words like truth my truth or my personal experience, lived experience, all these sorts of phrases that are meant to allow them room to inject their own personal views and opinions into reporting. Now, I write, I do a lot of opinion journalism, okay? My opinion's right out there. The stuff I write is like, here's what I think based on the facts. That's opinion journalism. What we want our reporters to do is to report, not to inject themselves into it. And I think what you're seeing among the younger generation in particular is an effort to be uh, very much to very much uh, use things like identity and sexuality and anything they can to position themselves as having some higher truth than just any other regular reporter. And what that means is that you see the older editors struggling to teach them the basics of journalism and they have no interest in listening to those basics. Just for, for listeners, if you wish to read Ms. Rosen on the performance of specific journalists and columnists, you can go to the Commentaries website and just go into her media columns month by month. And you can find one on Washington Post Global Opinions Editor, Karen Atia, Atia maybe, and one on MSNBC's Mehdi Hassan. And if you, if you observe those two in action, you will find the, the surgery that Ms. Rosen performs highly satisfying, gratifying. So... Uh, let's turn, though, to your column from February. Just just came out as we're recording. Enola Gay, or how the media imploded when it came to Harvard's president. I thought her name was, was Cla- Claudia, not, not Enola. Anyway. So that uh, headline for- I did not choose. So all, as all writers okay. will tell you, we don't get to choose the headlines every time. So, yes. Well, <laughs> in the piece, you track the reporting on, on the affair. You, you sort of go through almost week by week of how, I guess, starting with the, with the, with the post-October 7th uh, demonstrations and the testimony and then the, the, uh, the plagiarism, starting with her, that disastrous uh, testimony before Congress. Um, side question. Uh, you, you've got academic ex- experience. You've got, got your, your doctorate. Why couldn't Gay and the others just say, when asked, 
You know, is is it, is it, are these genocidal statements? Are, are they okay? Why couldn't this? Of course, it's awful. There is no excuse for them. But you know, they're young. They're 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 sort of you know not not that informed. We just have to teach them better, not really punish them. I mean, couldn't they fudge? Uh, a little better th- than they did. I mean, some weasel response that that didn't try to get uh, what contextual about it. Yes, the well, I, I would say yes, they should have. And if they were true leaders of these uh, most elite universities in not not even in the nation, but in in the world, uh, they would have done that. But they are not leaders. They had been lawyered into submission because they fear, you know, the, whatever fears they have about lawsuits, which by the way, are already happening. There are students who are suing these elite institutions for not protecting them from actual threats of violence. Jewish students who have had to bring suit against their universities, which is appalling. They couldn't say it though, because they also genuinely, most of them believe that Jewish students are not part of the, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion uh, umbrella. They don't, they don't count. They're too white, they're too successful, they're too all these other excuses they make for them. They they are seen in the oppressor-oppressed hierarchy as among the oppressors. So to to give their concerns the same validity and legitimacy, you know they would have if this had been about race or sexuality, there would have been no question. That answer would have been that is unacceptable. But in the case of Jews, it was they they hemmed, they hawed, they made excuses. And that was absolutely a, a complete failure of leadership, in my opinion. Well, and it turns out it was quite a miscalculation. Yes, very much. But but not only not only by the the presidents, but by the lawyers, mm-hmm. I, I would say too. This this, and how did the media? We'll get back to your column. How did the media cover her and the others' testimony? Well, the mainstream media. What was the general line on it? So the general line, which was interesting, you could see it happening, uh, very rapidly developing as soon as all everyone who watched that testimony knew it was a disaster. And then there was like, oh, no, but but Claudine Gay in particular is, you know, she's in the protected class and she's the first black female president of Harvard. Oh, no. What are we going to do? So they went free speech. We're going to we're going to suddenly remember that we care about free speech and that universities should care about free speech. So anything she says that's criticized, they're trying to suppress free speech. So they tried that line for a while. Meanwhile, um, on, uh, behind the scenes, there were people who had been looking into her record in particular as a scholar. And what they found, first of all, it's an extremely thin record. This is someone who has never published a book. And as uh, you know, anyone who has an academic background would have looked at her resume and said, there's no way this person could become the president of Harvard. But there she is. And also she had plagiarized. So that that actually had been before that story broke Recently, there had been a, concerns raised about her work, even at the doctoral level. So that, I think, made it impossible for the press to, to give her cover anymore on the genocide statement. Because once the plagiarism came, they actually then had to, had to take it seriously. Although they tried, they fought tooth and nail not to, not to have to write that story or to give it legitimacy. Do you think that if the plagiarism charges hadn't come up or were weaker then they turned out to be uh, the Harvard board initially backed her. Do you think that she might have been able to weather the the whole thing would have survived and remained in place? Yes. Without the plagiarism charges, she'd still be president of Harvard, I think. Um, even with the plagiarism charges, I think it's important for people to realize she lost the presidency. She is still a very highly paid tenured professor <laughs> teaching right. students on campus, students who would be uh, ejected from their universities if they did in their own schoolwork what she did in her scholarly yeah. work. The first plagiarism charges come up 
<laughs> what was the mainstream media response to those little uh, those little uh, well the f- errors of hers? Yes, the first response was that it was an attack on black excellence, and that it was you know these were just quibbles. You know, I forget that there was an exact phrase that the New York Times uh, used. Uh, shoot, I'm going to forget it, but it, but it was an, an extreme yes. euphemism for right. she stole other people's work. <laughs> right, right, um, right. So it was an right. attempt to make excuses for her, which is not the job. That is the job of her lawyer and her friends and family. The job of a journalist is to say, is this true or not? I'm going to report it out. I'm going to see what is what is true here and what is not, which, for example, Aaron Sabarium at the Washington Free Beacon did. Chris Rufo at, at, at the Manhattan Institute did. People were actually reporting this. Mainstream reporters were doing everything possible to either make excuses for her or to say that any interest in the plagiarism charge was a right-wing backlash against her. And those are the two things they tried to do for about a week. And even that collapsed in the face of the evidence. And as you note, the New York Times opened its op-ed page widely to Claudia and Gay herself. Uh, What's your assessment of the quality of that op-ed? Well, I mean, you got to love the New York Times, right? They're so concerned about all their staff feeling safe when a when a sitting senator uh, who happens to be a Republican writes something. But, you know, the head of the Taliban is fine and a plagiarizing Harvard president is fine. So she she had a complete uh, she gave a defense of herself. She basically played the victim. She she defended her scholarship and, and suggested that all she needed to do was correct a few errors and update a few notes, which she did. Um, I thought that that op-ed was so damning, and historians should and hopefully will judge it as so damning of a kind of um, uh, completely myopic and uh, instrumental approach and careerist way of understanding what it means to be an educator, what it means to be a leader on a college campus. It was it was it was despicable. I I was surprised, and you know you 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 brought it out very well. How could the Times editors not have said to her, now, now P- President Gay, I, I think if we just adjust this sentence a little bit, I mean, is, is someone <laughs> like Gay <laughs> so pampered and admired in the hothouse of the elite campus that she simply cannot imagine how people outside of that uh, little province would read these these statements, the self-satisfaction, the 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 self-glorification, the histrionics, totally unaware? No, I think they were fully aware. But like uh, like the question you asked earlier about, about um, how could they cover Biden, how are they able to do this with a straight face and cover Biden in this way? I would say the same thing applies to the New York Times editorial board and its readers, which is to say they think they are in a broader culture war here. And Claudine Gay played a victim in the culture war when she was, in fact, not a victim, but they need victims. The war has to go on, right? And this idea that because plenty of conservatives are having necessary and important victories in terms of attacking, you know, DEI and the anti-racism nonsense that's been going on on campus, she fit into that for their narrative, which was to say, the right is coming for education. You should all be very afraid. And she happily played that role for them. So that for them, again, it served a broader aim in a larger war. And so it was justified to sort of overlook her errors. And the fact that she's African-American woman allowed them to say, you know, they're just after her because of her identity. Well, I, I, th- that's one area where I would agree with the New York Times. I want them to be very afraid of what, <laughs> what, 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 what we're doing. So, uh, but there, there was a point at which the mainstream media, it cracked a little bit. Yes. Right? Yes. What, what, what brought that on? 
I think it took, and, and this is the case, and I will, I not, not, I don't want to be entirely um, uh, unfair because there are there are some very decent mainstream liberal people who work in the media and who write columns, and they do sometimes just get sick of it. So John McWhorter is the example here. John McWhorter wrote a piece in the New York Times op-ed page, and he said, and he's a very quirky guy. I mean, I wouldn't, he certainly wouldn't call him conservative, but he's a good skeptical liberal. And he said, enough. I mean, this is nonsense. She needs to step down. And he was actually encouraging her to make the uh, ethically sound choice of, of doing that herself, not being forced to be pushed out. But I think it takes some of those voices. And that nowadays takes courage, not in the battlefield sense, but in the professional sense, because you're really risking your professional reputation in that world if you step up and say, the emperor has no clothes, or in this case, the empress. And he said that, and I admire him for that. As we know, the approval ratings for journalists are single digits. How do the journalists interpret their own unpopularity? Hmm. Um, ooh, now we're getting very deep into the, psycho the psychology is, of journalism. Is, uh, <laughs> I will the, make a guess. The ones you've encountered. <laughs> um, I mean, what, they... they uh, I have, I have, a, I have a speculate. I'll speculate as to what yeah, they might yeah, yeah. think. I think, yeah. I think they feel like they are still part of an important institution. You, you said at the beginning of this uh, conversation, the fourth estate. They do see themselves as a pillar of democracy, but when you look at the lack of trust, I think there's a huge amount of uh, a huge lack of self awareness among the profession right now about how, why that trust eroded. People don't just start mistrusting uh, the entire profession of journalism because, you know, oh, they just got cranky with a story that was written. This has accumulated over time. The, the mistrust has been rising over time. And they have alternatives now. They can go elsewhere. And I'm, unfortunately, some of the places they go online are not giving them better information. But they can go elsewhere and say, you know, what does another person think of this? What does someone, at, you know, an, an, another publication think? And that's important. They have another they have other ways of looking at, at, at events. And I think for journalists, um, they, they still want to control a narrative that is in many cases uh, from the left, uh, ideologically uh, monolithic. And they, they need to understand that when they talk to people that way, when they write about people that way, they come across as elitist and they are the elite. They, they remain mostly an elite group. That's fine. But they, but they, it's condescending. And I think there's a lot of things people can put up with, but being condescended to and lied to aren't two things that most people like to experience. You, you, you write later another column on uh, the economics of journalism, a lot of layoffs. They're, they're, uh, they're, they're, some of them are kind of in a panic. I mean, Los Angeles time, you, you mentioned several outlets which have made steep cuts and that we may see more, in the coming years, is this is this causing two things? One, is there a rising panic among journalists? And two, are they reflecting upon themselves as part of the reason for their uh, their decline? Uh, to the first question, yes, there's panic, uh, and it's justifiable. Um, to the second question, not at all. And that's really, I think, part of the problem is. Um, in order to understand how the profession needs to change and must change, uh, there has to be some acknowledgement that the way that they have been doing things, particularly political journalists, I would say, and cultural journalists, the way that things have been getting done um, have has driven people away. 
And so you need readers and you you have to actually cultivate readers who trust you. You have to cultivate sources that trust you. You have to cultivate a, a profession requires hard work. And one of the things I, I'll say to your earlier observation about younger journalists, they come out of elite institutions and go to a place like the New York Times or the Washington Post. They don't sit at a school board meeting month after month, taking notes and filing local news. Local news is gone. Yeah. And that's actually yeah. a tragedy because that was also a proving ground for young journalists trying to understand how to actually practice their craft. Uh, last question. Uh, we're look- looking ahead toward the election. You're going to have to speculate again. Uh, you know, a few years back, just after the 2020 election, you had a column that noted uh, first, that Trump performed a little better with Black and Hispanic voters. Uh, mostly you, you focus on Hispanic and Latino voters. And second, that the media explained this by casting those Trump supporters as white people, uh, not not a real minority group. And you you gave more examples of that race, race, race narrative that, that, that keeps going to the left. It's fixation on race victimhood in spite of the faltering state of that narrative. And we're seeing recent polls, Trump is doing even better with Hispanic, Latino, maybe a little better with with Black voters. Are we going to see a ramping up of race journalism as we as we head toward toward the summer? Yes. And it especially with Hispanic male voters, which is where uh, Biden has lost significant ground and Trump is, has gained uh, significant ground. Um, I don't think that the that first iteration that you described is going to work this time. And that's because, again, there are conservative journalists who are going and interviewing these people. Why do you like Trump more than Biden? I mean, they're actually doing the job of journalism. I think what the mainstream outlets are going to pivot to, and we've seen little bits and pieces of this. Um, we saw this actually when Trump ran the first time with when it came time to, to figure out why white non-college educated men were voting and thinking the way they were. They will think they will treat these people as dupes or fools. They will be like, well, they're uneducated. You know, as an educated journalist, let me explain to you all of the things. They're on this website, QAnon, and they're doing that. And again, the condescension just pours out of them. I don't think they even understand it as condescension. They see themselves as explaining these complicated things that surely a non-college educated voter couldn't possibly understand. But of course, these people understand. Everyone understands their own life, how much groceries cost, how much it costs to fill up your tank with gas. Those are the real issues that concern them. And when they look to Biden versus Trump, a lot of them remember being better off economically when Trump was president, even if they don't like Trump. And they look at Joe Biden and they're like, this guy's really old. So that right there will make a decision for a lot of people. And it has nothing to do with their ability to understand what's important about their lives in the country. We shall see. Uh, so uh, if uh, listeners, if you want to read Rosen, Ms. Rosen's columns, uh, commentary.org, and uh, there'll be more coming by the summer. We'll find out. Ms. Rosen, thank you for joining us. Thank you.